I'm Marcia Pendleton, producer and host of Backstage Stories on WBAI New York. This week, Romeo, artistic director of New Yorican Poets Cafe and acclaimed actor, writer and director Jerome Preston Bates will be with us to discuss upcoming projects that celebrate the lives of poet Miguel Algarin and rock icon Jimi Hendrix. Join us on Thursday, September 2nd at 9 p.m. for an hour of power featuring music, conversation and performance on the next Backstage Stories. The previous program was Max Politics, and that's heard Wednesdays at 5 p.m. Here on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM and WBAI.org online. It is now 6 p.m. Stay tuned for the WBAI Evening News coming up. Good evening. An assault on abortion rights. We talk about Afghanistan and in New York, calls of racism over a development plan for Soho and NoHo. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Wednesday, September 1st, 2021. A federal bankruptcy judge gave conditional approval Wednesday to a sweeping, potentially $10 billion plan submitted by OxyContin maker Purdue Pharma to settle a mountain of lawsuits over its role in the opioid crisis that's killed half a million Americans over the past two decades. Under the settlement, the Sackler family will give up ownership of the company and contribute $4.5 billion, but the the Sacklers will be shielded from any future lawsuits over opioids. New York Attorney General Letitia James announced as part of the settlement she had secured, quote, more than $4.5 billion from the Sackler family and foundations that they control for their role in fueling the opioid crisis. James added in her statement, no deal is perfect and no amount of money will ever make up for the hundreds of thousands who lost their lives, the millions who became addicted, or the countless families torn apart by this crisis. But these funds will be used to prevent future death and destruction as a result of the opioid epidemic. And in more news on Tuesday, President Joe Biden made his case for pulling out of Afghanistan. Despite the chaos and violence that ensued, he says times have changed. I take responsibility for the decision. Now, some say we should have started mass evacuation sooner. And couldn't this have been done have been done in a more orderly manner? I respectfully disagree. Imagine if we've begun evacuations in June or July, bringing in thousands of American troops and evacuating more than 120,000 people in the middle of a civil war. There are those who would say we should have stayed indefinitely. They ask, why don't we just keep doing what we were doing? Why do we have to change anything? The fact is, everything had changed. My predecessor had made a deal with the Taliban. When I came into office, we faced a deadline, May 1. The Taliban onslaught was coming. We faced one of two choices. Follow the agreement of the previous administration or send in thousands of more troops and escalate the war. And that's President Biden. 
on Tuesday. Meanwhile, a group of congressmen from the far-right Freedom Caucus say Biden should get the blame for the Afghanistan debacle. The person who said the buck stops here, who said more than 20 times we will not leave any American behind, the person who basically orchestrated the July 2nd evacuation of Bagram without telling Afghanis, we call upon most somberly the resignation of this President Joe Biden. And we'll hear from a veteran wounded by a landmine in Afghanistan in 2009 later in this newscast. In more United States news, the nation's most far-reaching curb on abortion since they were legalized a half century ago took effect in Texas with the Supreme Court silent on an emergency appeal to put the law on hold. If allowed to remain in force, the law which bans most abortions would be the strictest against abortion rights in the United States since the high court's landmark Roe v. Wade decision in 1973. The Texas law, signed by Republican Governor Greg Abbott in May, prohibits abortions once medical professionals can detect cardiac activity, usually about six weeks and before most women know they're pregnant. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki says it's time for Congress to step up and legalize abortion outright. Texas law blatantly violates the constitutional right established under Roe v. Wade and upheld as precedent for nearly half a century. It will significantly impair women's access to the health care they need, particularly for communities of color and individuals with low incomes. It also deputizes private citizens to bring lawsuits against anyone who they believe has helped another person get an abortion, which might even include family members, health care workers, front desk staff at a health care clinic, or strangers with no connection to the individuals. This further isolates individuals who are facing this tough choice. And I would note, for those of you who didn't see, people who report, uh, who who for these private citizens could get up to $10,000 for reporting somebody who's seeking an abortion. So our focus and the president's focus is uh, to reiterate our deep commitment to the uh, constitutional right, of course, established by Roe v. Wade nearly five decades ago, and to continue to call for the codification of Roe, something that the president talked about on the campaign trail, the vice president talked about on the campaign trail, and this highlights even further the need to move forward on that effort. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki speaking this morning at a New York City Hall news conference. The director of the Center for Reproductive Rights, Nancy Northrup, says her organization fought the law in Texas. And she adds there are many more similar laws being passed. As of this morning, while the clinics are open in Texas to be able to answer calls, they're not able to provide services to almost the majority of women in the state of Texas who are seeking abortions. And we're in this spot because Texas passed a law that banned abortion at six weeks, but then, because it's clearly unconstitutional, what they did was instead of saying, we're going to enforce this ourselves as the government of Texas, we're going to empower individual individual citizens to be basically vigilantes and bring lawsuits against providers, against clinic workers, against a sister who drives her sister to a clinic, against a friend who provides the, the means, has, provides financial support for an abortion. All of these people can be hauled into court because they've helped someone get a constitutionally protected procedure. And it is absolutely outrageous, but they did this to try to evade judicial review, to create this citizen vigilantes. And basically it's empowered anti-abortion activists to harass and intimidate. It's absolutely dystopian if it wasn't for the fact that it's actually real right now in Texas. 
So I would underscore what Sonia said about it's so important, even here in New York, where we have such strong protections for abortion access, where we have Medicaid funding for abortion so that it's accessible to people, whatever their incomes, that we need to join together and be fighting uh, for those in Texas. The Center for Reproductive Rights is also representing the only clinic in Mississippi, in this case, in the Supreme Court coming up. And we need people around the nation to do everything they can. Nancy Northrup is director of the Center for Reproductive Rights. The Texas law is part of a broader push by Republicans across the country to impose new restrictions on abortion. At least 12 other states have enacted bans early in pregnancy, but all have been blocked from going into effect. What makes the Texas law different is its unusual enforcement scheme. Rather than have officials responsible for enforcing the law, Private citizens are authorized to sue abortion providers and anyone involved in facilitating abortions. Among other situations, that would include anyone who drives a woman to a clinic to get an abortion. Under the law, anyone who successfully sues another person would be entitled to at least $10,000. The New York City president of the National Organization for Women is Sonja Ocasio. The ramifications for the rest of the country, for states, is really, really severe. The Supreme Court really indicated to us where they are by not stopping this law last night. And what you should know is while they decided not to review this, they have decided to review Mississippi ban on abortion at 15 weeks. That is coming up within weeks. And the truth of the matter is we could see the end of federal protection for abortion rights in this country by the end of the year. And right now, In New York City, we have been a leader on reproductive rights. It is time to reach across to all of our citizens across the country to really help. It is time to reach out to every person that you know in Texas, in Mississippi, and all of the states that have experienced all of these bans day in, day out that have happened. There have literally been 550 bans on abortion care over the last 10 years. This past year has seen the highest number. And who does that fall on most? It falls on poor people, on marginalized communities. They are hit the hardest, and they are the ones that are having their lives affected the most. Now, we have just concluded the largest air evacuation of civilians. in. Uh, thank you. And that's Abortion Rights Act. That's uh, the director of the New York City president, uh, that is, of the National Organization for Women, Sonja Ocasio. Abortion rights activists say the Texas law will force many women to travel out of state for abortions if they can afford to do so and also navigate issues including childcare and taking time off work. The law is part of a hard right agenda that Texas Republicans muscled through the state house this year ahead of the 2022 midterm elections when Abbott is up for a third term as governor. And Army General Mark Milley, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, said today that it's possible the United States will seek to coordinate with the Taliban on counterterrorism strikes in Afghanistan against Islamic State militants or others. Milley didn't elaborate, and his comments didn't appear to suggest immediate plans to work with the Taliban. His stood his. Uh, his statement came at a news conference where Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin asserted the withdrawal from Kabul was a success. Just concluded the largest air evacuation of civilians in American history. It was heroic. It was historic. 
And I hope that all Americans will unite to thank our service members for their courage and their compassion. They were operating in an immensely dangerous and dynamic environment. But our troops were tireless, fearless, and selfless. Our commanders never flinched. And our allies and partners were extraordinary. The United States evacuated some 6,000 American citizens and a total of more than 124,000 civilians. And we did it all in the midst of a pandemic and in the face of grave and growing threats. I am incredibly proud of those who made it happen, and they made it happen with grit and skill and humanity. As one mission ends, others must go on. It's our duty to defend this nation, and we're not going to take our eye off the ball. And that means Sick. relentless counterterrorism efforts against any threat to the American people from any place. But right now, it's time to thank all those who served in this war. Because you are the greatest asset that we have. You. The war has ended, but our gratitude never will. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin the U.S. military ousted the Taliban from power in the fall of 2001 and fought against them for the 19 years that followed. The 20th anniversary of the attacks on the World Trade Center and Pentagon is coming in less than two weeks. A soldier who answered the call to fight in Afghanistan is United States Army Captain Dan Bershinsky. He lost both legs above the knee to a landmine. He says the initial assault on Osama bin Laden was worth the invasion, but not what came after. I served as an army officer, uh, infantry platoon leader in 2009. So I fought in Afghanistan in 2009. And I understood from my experience on the ground really from day one that this withdrawal, this conclusion to the war was inevitable. And I've been wanting our nation to recognize that inevitability and address it ever since. So I am relieved that the Biden administration, after three previous administrations, finally decided to acknowledge the reality and get us out of this unwinnable and unnecessary war. Why were we in there for 20 years? Were we there for the right reason? What was unnecessary and really when our problem started was somewhere in the six to 12 months after our initial invasion, when the mission changed from a narrowly focused counterterrorism operation to one of nation building, getting rid of the Taliban completely and creating a Western friendly, democratic form of governance in Afghanistan that had never, ever existed prior. So when it struck you the day you were injured, actually, and the Afghan soldiers were refusing to guard their own polling places during an election. On August 18th, the mission I had planned was to take my platoon of soldiers along with an equivalent number of Afghan army soldiers that we had been conducting joint patrols with sporadically and go out and essentially conduct reconnaissance on a few polling sites for the upcoming national election, which I believe was going to occur on, on August 20th, just two days later. But that morning, I woke up to begin the mission, 
And I was told that our Afghan counterparts had left the base overnight and they refused to participate in the mission. And in fact, they refused to come back for several days until after the national election was concluded. I'm incredibly proud of what my soldiers accomplished, what we attempted to accomplish. I have no regrets about my service. I was there to lead my soldiers as ethically and effectively as possible. And, And I think most soldiers would tell you they were there to take care of their fellow American soldiers, because our soldiers don't vote for the wars we fight. Um, It's our civilian leadership that that chooses it. But there on the ground, as proud as I was of my soldiers, realizing that the Afghan army that we were ostensibly there to support and build just wasn't even willing to fight. That was incredibly disheartening. And yeah, that, that moment really drilled into me how pointless our effort was. And that was the same day you were wounded. Yeah, I was wounded later that night. So the mission changed from visiting the polling sites to we just went on a kind of presence patrol in our surrounding area. And two soldiers were killed in close proximity to me to IEDs. And then later that evening, I stepped on a third IED and mine was a little bit smaller. So instead of killing me, it just blew off both my legs. It strikes me that two U.S. soldiers and you might not have been injured if those Afghan army soldiers the U.S. had trained had done their job? Potentially, although it's also quite likely that we would have showed up at a polling site and gotten into a firefight with the Taliban. That's the unfortunate situation about sticking yourself in the middle of a civil war or a guerrilla war in Afghanistan. It was impossible for us to be there without taking risks, without accepting casualties. I got hurt on August 18th, could have gotten hurt, several other times before that or after that if I had stayed there. But the point is, as long as we have American soldiers in Afghanistan, we were going to take casualties, and we did for 20 years. From your perspective, how should the U.S. deal going forward with the Middle East? I mean, that is the, it's no longer a million-dollar question. It's a trillion-dollar question. I will say this. America was not at war in Afghanistan for 20 years. America's military was at war. Less than 1% of our population will serve in uniform. As long as our civilian leadership abdicate their responsibility to debate the merits of a war, declare literally declare within Congress who, what, when, where, and why we are going to war, which is not something we've done since World War II. If our civilian leadership won't take its responsibility seriously and they just defer to a military that has a can-do attitude that does not want to accept defeat and that is the clearly the sole superpower on this planet, we will continue to pursue wars of choice despite them being unnecessary or unwinnable. U.S. Army Captain Dan Bershinsky, he lost both legs above the knee to a landmine in Afghanistan in 2009. And we'll be covering this story pretty closely with more uh, more people who served and were injured and were involved in the uh, airlift of 
aides and people who helped the United States from Afghanistan over the last week uh, later on in this uh, on the news in uh, on WBAI. And you're listening to WBAI in New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. New York City is urging, we're in local news now, but it also is national, a national bent. New York City is urging residents to limit travel today as the remnants of Hurricane Ida, now a tropical depression, bringing significant rain to much of the mid-Atlantic region, moves over the area. The travel advisory, which is in effect through uh, Thursday at 2 p.m., comes as forecasters expect rainfall rates of one to two inches per hour. The rain, along with wind gusts, means an increased risk of flash flooding as well. The city is urging residents to protect homes in flood-prone areas with sandbags and plywood, prepare, prepare for power outages with charged devices, and have plans in place for evacuating elderly neighbors or those with disabilities. Meanwhile, recovery has begun in the Gulf states of Louisiana and Mississippi, hard hit by the hurricane's 150-mile winds. Stephen McCraney is with the Mississippi State Emergency Management Office. 184 roads affected and uh, 53 bridges that have been impacted by this storm. So we're constantly getting engineers out at the local level. We're checking those to see which ones that we can get back in, in stable uh, passing. And also, uh, how do we need to repair these roads and get that back in? The power outages, we have reconnected about 100,000 customers out there in the system. We did have some main transmission lines that were down, so one want to... Be just a little patient. As those crews are out working, by Friday we should see the whole state back to uh, current power. We have some uh, Louisiana folks that are with us, and that is what Mississippi does. We are the hospitality state. And I, I want to remind folks, this is a tense time. It is hot. You're going to be out there trying to recover, clean up yards, get stuff. Do not move power lines. Let the professionals do that. We are in recovery. Let's get to the next step out of response and recover properly and not lose any life. And that is Stephen McCraney with the Mississippi State Emergency Management Office. And in more New York State news, lawmakers today are poised to extend sweeping protections against evictions into next year, moving to keep hundreds of thousands of people whose finances have been battered by the pandemic in their homes. The move was the first by a state to put in place new barriers to eviction after the U.S. Supreme Court last week rejected the Biden administration's moratorium. It came as many parts of the country, including New York, have struggled to distribute tens of billions of dollars in pandemic rent relief that seeks to address renters' unpaid bills. After a separate Supreme Court ruling last month blocked a key piece of New York's previous statewide moratorium, many tenant advocates had feared a wave of evictions were looming. A coalition of anti-eviction activists rallied yesterday at the offices of Governor Kathy Hochul. And he's gonna fight too long. Yes, he's gonna fight too long. Yes, he's gonna fight too long. I say somebody's heading our tenants. Activist Adeline Figueroa is with the Poor People's Campaign. It's immoral, it's unjust, as I was saying. In this pandemic, when thousands of people have are back and under rent because of the pandemic, and also most of the people are the people that we are called now essential, and to do this is like a slap in the face. In this city, because we have the money, so it, we need just the political will to change this and make this happen. And another activist who we spoke with was Kelly Smith. 
We find money for corporations. It's never a question. We find money for our military. You know, the first relief package that came out during the pandemic was a $1.5 trillion infusion into the Fed, into the, you know, to finance, into Wall Street. So we are sold this idea that there is scarcity, but we know that there's abundance. And so this constant idea that we have to start evicting people and that it's because of some fault of their own that people are in crisis is crazy. I mean, why do we have elected officials if they aren't here to use the money to save the people in their community? And Smith addressed the whole issue of why billions of dollars of money that had been passed by Congress in order to pay back rents has not been distributed. It's a, a little bit of a mystery as well. There seems to be some sort of political capital into not using the funds that you're given. We see it time and time around the country that governors give back money when they're begging for it at other times. But there seems to be some sort of like political power, political capital in saying that, no, I've taken care of my people. We're good. And we're not actually getting it out to the people. We also make things so ridiculously complicated to get help. To me, that's another problem. It doesn't need to be as arduous, as complicated, as many hoops to jump through to get the help that's just been given to be doled out to people. Kelly Smith is with the Poor People's Campaign in New York City yesterday, Governor Hochul's offices. And finally, despicable is how opponents of the Soho NoHo rezoning plan are describing a full frontal attack on them by a Department of City Planning honcho who tarred them as racist on Monday. As part of the city's Euler land use review for the major downtown rezoning, the City Planning Commission held a pre-hearing review so that the commissioners could be prepped on the plan. In her Opening marks to Tuesday's pre-hearing review, Anita Lermont, the agency's executive director, immediately launched into blasting locals who have been battling the upzoning scheme, saying there is certainly no question neighborhood change can be challenging and that we need all voices to be heard. However, there is absolutely no excuse for the abusive and disrespectful words, including racist comments that we've heard repeatedly through the planning process. Andrew Berman is a a pro-preservation activist in the Lower East Side in Greenwich Village, and he addressed those allegations by the city planning department. City planning has an atrocious record when it comes to racist rezonings that have negatively impacted lower income and people of color communities, and they're continuing that longstanding tradition with the Soho Noho rezoning, where they have targeted the biggest upzoning and the most displacement for the Chinatown section of the rezoning, which they have literally tried to erase with the proposal, renaming it Soho East. So, you know, the department should really take a good long look in the mirror uh, rather than tossing around baseless and offensive accusations of racism. They know well and good that the city and state's largest tenant and housing organizations have come out against this plan. And in fact, two people of color leaders of those two organizations did a really powerful, hard-hitting op-ed in the Daily News slamming the plan and urging that it be rejected. The new incoming presumed council member for District 1, the winner of the Democratic primary, Christopher Marte, the son of Dominican immigrants who grew up on the Lower East Side, has been one of the most vocal opponents of the plan. 
this is really a desperate attempt to build support for a plan that clearly is the exact opposite of what the city claims it will be. It will displace low-income people. It will create little, if any, new affordable housing. It's a giant gift and giveaway to the mayor's developer friends, and it will result in huge amounts of big box retail, NYU dorms, corporate office buildings, high-end hotels, luxury condos and rentals, which through a whole menu of loopholes and exemptions do not have to include any kind of affordable housing. Where does this project stand right now? Well, tomorrow is the, is the hearing at the City Planning Commission, the one and only hearing. They're doing it the Thursday before Labor Day, <laughs> clearly designed to suppress public participation as much as possible. Last week, the Manhattan Borough President held a five-hour hearing where by far the majority of speakers were opposed and they represented a whole range of housing and tenant and environmental groups, as well as community organizations. Somewhat mysteriously, even though her deadline has passed, she has not issued her recommendation on it yet, so we don't yet know her position. And from the City Planning Commission, it goes to the City Council. If it's approved by the City Planning Commission, it's final stop. Don't yet know her position. And from the City Planning Commission, it goes to the City Council. If it's approved by the City Planning Commission, it's final stop. And that would be a vote later this year? It would happen before the end of the year. They're rushing to get this in before the de Blasio administration is out the door. We're hoping that the council will give member deference, as it's called, to the incoming council member, as opposed to the outgoing council member, although we don't know for sure exactly where Margaret Chin is on this, although she seems much more positively inclined towards it. Part of the proposed rezoning area is in Carlina Rivera's district, who is returning. But most importantly, we want the council members to vote on its merits, on the fact that it is a giant lie. It's a giant giveaway to real estate interests. It will not only harm these neighborhoods, but New York City as a whole. It won't help with affordability. It will hurt. It won't help with diversity. It will diminish it. It will make these neighborhoods richer. It will make the housing costs there higher. And it will decrease the socioeconomic diversity of the people who live there. Andrew Berman is the executive director of Village Preservation. And that's some of the news for Wednesday, September 1st, 2021. The news producer, Linda Perry and Reggie Johnson, is our engineer. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.